Thanks, Catherine. I should I should um, I should first explain uh, when when I first talked to Catherine about giving this talk, I said, "Who cares about research integrity?" Um, only to discover later that that's ambiguous between the sort of literal meaning of who cares about research integrity, which would mean a sort of empirical study of people's attitudes to research integrity. Um, but what I actually meant was the sort of non-literal, sort of more flippant view, which is who cares about, which what I was really getting at was why care about research integrity, um, rather than strictly who cares. So I hope that doesn't mean that you've changed your mind about listening to what I've got to say and want to leave. Um, <clears throat> but what I'm interested in here, um, generally, and it fits with a number of things I'm interested in more generally, is this question of the justification uh, for these sorts of, as it were, intrusions into research. So, I mean, the, the sort of overarching question is a question about the justification for the certain sorts of regulations, certain sorts of interventions, guidance, advice that we might give to researchers that intervene in, that in mess up, as it were, to various extents, the research progress, uh, research process. Um, and what I want to do in the next half hour or so is um, first draw a few distinctions and get clear about a couple of things. Then go, I'll go into what is typically talked about or what is often talked about in the sort of biomedical context under the umbrella of research integrity, namely various ways of various misconduct, kinds of misconduct. Um, but then in the second part of the talk, I'll sort of broaden that out and think more generally about in a sort of broader way about research integrity and why we might care about that. Um, so I hope that sounds reasonable. Uh, it's tough if it doesn't. <laughs> um, um, so the first question is to be, uh, this, this is as much stipulative as anything. This is what I'm going to mean by research integrity. Um, and this will make sense of what I mean by talking about more narrow senses and, more, um, and less narrow senses. So one element of research integrity um, is a question, is point about compliance. So I think it's Boston has, in, if you go to the Boston University, they have research integrity and compliance. And they sort of seem to lump all this stuff together. The idea that research integrity is about getting researchers just to do what they're legally required to do, that sort of stuff. Getting them to comply, making them do it, as it were. Um, and this is uh, presumably that this is involved with the law and what the regulations are and those sorts of questions. Then there's this element of research which is about misconduct, so doing the wrong thing. Now I've separated this out from ethics, which I'll, I'll say a bit more about <laughs> in a minute, partly because what I take to be the ethics is there are going to be what I understand to be ethical issues to do with these set of questions, which there won't be about here. So typically we don't think that it's an ethical issue whether or not to falsify data. Right, so that as where the ethics is settled on that, then it's a question of misconduct, whether or not you should act, act wrongly or not. So these tend to be cases where we, on the face of it, look like they're wrong doing the wrong thing. Whereas these cases, what I call ethics, is going to be cases where it's not clear what the right thing to do is. It's not clear whether it's wrong or right. Um, but I'll spend a bit more time talking about these kinds of cases in, in just a minute. Um, in terms of ethics, I mean, there's quite a contrast. Quite a bit of this is quite controversial, I think, and each, probably developing each of them would require its own uh, paper. Um, I mean, very quickly, I count methodology, scientific robustness, those sorts of questions, as an ethical issue, because 
very, very quickly, if you're doing a bad piece of science, a piece of science that is not robustly conceived or robustly developed, then that's a waste of your time, a waste of the subject's time, a waste of money, etc., etc. And that's unethical, right? If you think about why there's an obligation to do research or why research is permissible, it te tends to rely on or rest, particularly in the biomedical context, it relies on there being a usefulness of the research. Of the research. And if you have bad science, bad methodology, then you undermine that justification, so you take away the grounds for doing it. The harms and benefits of consent are fairly straightforward. Then there's this usefulness, this usefulness criteria, which again I count as an ethical one. Again, there's no point doing a piece of research, it seems to me, and exposing people to risks, costs, those sorts of things, unless there's going to be some sort of benefit, unless there's some sort of use. And again, this is a depends very heavily on a sort of instrumentalist account of the reason for doing research, which we'll come back to. And similarly for social value. It doesn't make a lot of sense, it seems to me, to do a piece of research in a particular location where there's no benefits that will accrue to that, like, to the people in that location, to that particular social community, particularly if they're absorbing the risks. And then the final element of what I'm going to count here is uh, research integrity. Um, is this character thing, and this is the idea of getting people to be better people. Um, and we think about things about honesty and collegiality, and again, I think with a lot, uh, along the lines of the misconduct kinds of cases, I don't count this as ethics in, this, in, in a sort of, these are not ethical issues in a sense that need a particular sort of governance, because, I mean, we have a sort of general platitude that says, and, I mean, and we know our way around this platitude that says you should be honest. You know, you should be nice to, you know, you should be nice to your colleagues. You know, you should, you know, you should act, you should organise your in research, your, your working environment in a way that is at least oppressive as possible. I mean, these are the things that they're not specific to research, it seems to me, and they're more about, they're sort of, the ethics here is quite obvious, the question is whether we do it right. Um, there's an interesting... There's one website I looked at yesterday that was giving guidance about research integrity to undergraduate students. And it read, it, it read like, you know, you should be nice, you know, you should, you know, understand the limits of your knowledge and your ability. And I thought, well, this, in terms of the ethical issues, these, this strike me, these are where they, they lie. This is a different set, a separable set of questions. They all fit under research integrity, um, but I think it's useful to separate them out. Um, so now what I'm going to do in what follows is concentrate primarily on this one in my sort of looking at a specific cases, um, a, a specific, so as it were, example. I'm going to concentrate a little bit more on this and in particular conflicts of interest, although more can be said and I'm happy to talk more about the other ones. Um, this is in terms of getting at the sort of range of issues that come up in the justification of steps with respect to research integrity. And then in the second part, I want to talk more generally about the whole thing, right? So including, including in particular, these, these set of issues. Um, another thing to point out about, about these, I mean, it's, we are here in the hospital, and so there's a tendency to think about the biomedical stuff. Um, but I take it that this is also a university interest here. Um, and so it is important to not simply focus on the biomedical case. 
And I think if you just focus on the biomedical case when thinking about these issues, then the shape of it looks very different. The shape of the justification for this will look very different than if you take, for instance, into account other sorts of non-biomedical non research. Um, I mean, there's a lot of, lot of stuff has been written from the sort of social science perspective complaining, rightly, I think, that the biomedical context, the biomedical model has been sort of just wheeled out and applied in cases where it shouldn't really, it isn't appropriate to apply. A second kind of distinction um, that's useful here, and this is only one of them, um, is between two, as I said, there are two kinds of ought judgments, so two kinds of ethical judgments that we might, that we might make. Um, one is between <coughs> first person and second person judgments, or and perhaps an easy way of thinking about it is just direct and removed moral judgments. Um, and the thought here is that when I make it, when when I make a decision about what I ought to do, that's in a very particular context, with the range of options that I have available <coughs> to me, and my understanding of the range of options and the reasons for doing each of them, then that's <coughs> that's one sort. That's a direct judgment. So I'm confronted by this judgment, and it's, it's my it's I it's me that has to act. I have to decide and to act. Now this is different from the judgment that you might make about the judgment that I make, right? So I decide, and the, the original context in, that, I, that, I, that I was thinking about this was in a case, it's completely not relevant to this, um, was a case of abortion, right? So you have a woman who is um, 20 weeks pregnant and she's deciding whether or not to have abortion, an abortion. She has to make a direct judgment. She's responsible for that decision. She's responsible for what she does. It's her judgment. Nobody else's judgment, it's her judgment. But that doesn't stop all of us from having a go at saying what she should do. We can look at and come to the best understanding of her predicament or not. We can make a judgment about her judgment. So if she decides to have an abortion, we can say that was the right thing to do or that was the wrong thing to do. Now that is a second person judgment. That's an indirect judgment that we make about another person's moral judgment. But what's most interesting in this case, and what's relevant for here, I think, is that then what follows from us making an indirect judgment about the rightness or wrongness of her judgment is we then have to make another moral judgment, a direct moral judgment about how we respond to the wrongness or rightness of her judgment. This is all getting a bit confusing. But the, thought, well, the important point here is that there are two different direct judgments here. There's the judgments that, that, that the person makes in the particular case, the woman and her abortion. And then there's the, ju the judgment that we make on the basis of taking her to do the wrong thing, if we do, about what we should do about it. And it's important to realise there's a lot of things that we can do in response to wrongdoing that we perceive. We can just say, you shouldn't have done that. We can go and badmouth them behind their backs. And here I'm now thinking about the misconduct case. Think about a, mis a research misconduct. So a researcher has done something that we judge to be wrong. We now have to make a decision about what we do about that. One of the things we can do is just tell them that they're, they're naughty and they shouldn't do that. One is that we can go and prevent them from being in, in the club. We can 
um, tell them that they've done something illegal, we can arrest them, we can fine them, we can do all sorts of things. There's a whole spectrum of things that we're in, that we could, the responses. Now what's important here is that research integrity, regulation, interventions, those sorts of things fit in that kind of case. So it's important to distinguish between the judgments, the right, the, the mechanisms that go on for an individual in judging how they ought to act and separating that from how we should respond when we disagree with somebody else's judgment. It's important to distinguish the locus of choice here as well as reminding us that there's a further decision to be made, further moral decision to be made once we've judged in these cases. The second, um, the second kind of distinction that's useful here is consequence-based judgments from principle-based judgments and I'm including here character in this principle-based stuff. So um, the stuff we're talking about honesty and those sorts of questions, well, I'm going to count in, in, in the principle-based judgments and I can, I'm happy to justify that later. <laughs> I think there is justification. Um, now what's important here is I think that this, this distinction helps us to distinguish between the kinds of considerations involved in things like the harms associated with research as well as the methodology, questions about the appropriate methodology and the usefulness of the research from those that are involved in issues like consent, like justice um, and also questions about misconduct in some cases um, and character. Right? So just we can sort of separate out those just to keep them clear. Um, so what, I'm what I want to focus on here as I sort of begin to, begin to say at the, at the outset is what's the appropriate response to disagreements about direct judgments. Right? So now we have a set of direct judgments that a scientist, that a researcher has made and we have to decide what the appropriate way of responding or dealing with a di when we disagree with those sorts of decisions that they make. Or to put it sort of more cheekily, why and when should we meddle with science, and with researchers and they're doing their business. So the kinds of situations here is when society or when institutions or indeed professional societies say to individual researchers that you shouldn't do this and they go on to enforce it. Uh, they're the kinds of questions that I'm that we're that we're thinking of that I'm that I'm thinking about here. Now, as again as I said at the outset, what I'm interested to do is to first start by sort of drilling down a bit and looking at a particular kind of case, and then we'll broaden it back out again and come back to the general question about this in for research integrity in just a bit. And the example, as I mentioned, that I want to look at is this problem about misconduct. Um, and here I'm talking about things like falsification, um, uh, bad research practices, all the things that were on that list, um, authorship questions, conflict of interest, plagiarism, duplication. Um, now what seems clear about, about these kinds of misconduct cases is that the harms to the public and to the patients do look to be something of a problem. Right, so when we're thinking about biomedical research, and I'm thinking about bio primarily biomedical research in this case now, um, the harms, if for instance somebody fabricates the results of a trial, um, makes it up as they go along, 
then this is, may well cause, cause harm. And there's been quite a doc, lot of documentation, stuff written about the ways in which this might mislead research. And one response to this has been that, look, these things will get caught up, caught out, um, that people will catch up, science catch up quickly, fairly quickly. Um, if somebody claims to have found a cure for cancer and publishes it, it won't take long for somebody to check the results just to make sure um, that this is a problem. But generally, harms, harms are a problem. Um, these kinds of harms are a problem, so we do need to be careful about that. As I said, these are the particularly the sorts of things that seem to lead to it. Um, making up results, falsifying the results, and cutting research corners. So, so if methodology requires a particular sort of process and then you don't do that, then that might uh, undermine the quality of the research. Um, and as I mentioned, there are these checks. There might be some checks within science about the nature of the science and what science requires that might help with that. But it's not clear how long this will always take it. So a cure for cancer might be checked quite quickly, but some other stuff might cause a lot of damage before it actually gets found out. <clears throat> and what I think is most important about these, these problems, these kinds of harms, is that it connects back to the point of the research in the first place. Um, why the methodology matters, you'll recall, why I argue the methodology matters, you recall, is because um, of the usefulness of the research, the benefits that this is going to bring. All of these things, all of these kinds of misconduct undermine the kind, that justification, because they undermine the possibility of the science delivering the benefits that it's justified by. Right? So we think of science as being justified in terms of ethics. The reason we permit science, as it's allowed, is because of the benefits that it will bring, supposedly. These sorts of things undermine that, and so undermine its justification. And that's why we have these problems. Um, so thinking a bit, bit more about conflicts of interest, um, one of the things that sort of surpri surprised me in sort of looking at these, at these cases is um, how, and in the stuff that's been written about, there's an amazing amount of stuff written about conflicts of interest, which just, just you might figure out, staggers me. <laughs> um, the definition of conflict of interest just strikes me as really bad, apart from anything else. I mean, when I think about a conflict of interest, I think um, a conflict of interest is where two interests conflict. I have a conflict of interest where I have an interest that says, do that, and I have another interest that says, do that. And this looks like it happens all the time, completely, all, completely widespread. But the definition in the literature is often actually tied to wrongdoing associated with conflict of interest. So the definition is not actually about when somebody has a conflict of interest. It's doing wrong because of having a conflict of interest. So it's not good, not enough. Having a conflict of interest on this definition, on, on the literature definition, seems to be about being manipulated by financial concerns when you ought not to be. That is, by, that is falsifying or fabricating or cutting methodological corners because you're impressed by the amount of money you'll get when you do that. Which seems to me an odd definition. 
because it misplaces the wrongness here. I mean, what's wrong with this, that scenario is the falsification of data, is the fabrication of evidence. It's not the conflict of interest. If conflicts of interest are really widespread and all over the place, then there's a question, well, why do we have this urge to disclose them? Um, <clears throat> so, it looks as though the requirement to disclose a conflict of interest doesn't say anything about actually acting on the conflict. So, I mean, one of the worries that I, one of the things I've been looking for is some evidence that suggests that if people don't disclose conflict of interest, they're more likely to do the wrong thing. That is, other than their non-disclosure of the conflict. That is, they're more likely to fabricate if they're in the pocket of um, the pharmaceutical industry. And there isn't a lot of evidence about that, it seems. There's a lot of evidence that suggests that, that where there are commercial involvements, that there's favourable commercial results. But that seems to be a different point. It's not this point. I mean, the thing, overall, the thing to bear in mind about this, I think, is that we need to distinguish between the motives for why people do something and what it is that they do. So, the motives that researchers have for getting involved in a piece of research and the content of the research, so the actual research that they do. There's a huge range of reasons and motives that people have for doing particular sorts of research. It separates out, it draws a line between those motives and those reasons and what it is that they actually do. So somebody who is in the payment of a pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical industry, or in the, in the pharmaceutical industry, who is doing research only because of the great big paycheck they get because they're doing it for the pharmaceutical industry, can still do very good research. Can do, still do very good, solid, systematic, beneficial, etc. research. There's no necessary preclusion there. And there might be other issues, right? If, if the research that they're doing is, is, done in, is done in such a way methodologically unsound, so they're only, they compare, I mean, one of the strategies here is that the pharmaceutical industry do trials compared against placebo. Because it's easier to get a good result against a placebo than it is against the competition, right? So a good way of getting a good result and being able to say, yeah, wow, we've got this fantastic pill, is to compare it against placebo, something that we know doesn't work. Right? The problem with that, if there is a problem, and I think there probably is, is this is a waste of time. It's a usefulness point. Right? The problem is that kind of research is not very useful. It's not that the person who published it and was paid to, for, to doing it didn't say that he was paid to do it. Because the, research, the research can be criticised in a different sort of way from, from the conflict of interest. Anyway, I, mean, I think this is an example. I mean, the point of going into the conflicts of interest case is an example for thinking about how, trying to unpack some of the ways in which we think about the problem with misconduct, the problem with the kinds of sorts of misconduct that we're looking at when we're dealing with research integrity. So what I'd like to do is step back one step just to think about, sort of, sort of systematise a little bit the kinds of... Um, the kinds of problems and the kinds of issues involved with this kind of these kinds of misconduct. Um, and so the first is just to go through the various different sorts of harms that we might think are involved here and to have a little bit to say about each of them. Um, 
So I've already said a bit about the harms, in, uh, the harms involved to the public and the patients. Um, the next sort of thing that we really need to talk, raise is this harm to reputations. Um, so the reputation of science, the reputation of institutions, the reputations of journals. I'm conscious here that you know the university and the trust, they all have, there's all very, very strong concerns that their reputation is not damaged by, um, by the activities of, as it were, um, rebel researchers. Um, but I, I mean, I take it that these sorts of reputational risks, I mean, there's two ways about it. One worry about focusing, basing our worries about misconduct solely on a, on a reputation worry is that looks a little bit, it can be a little bit self-regarding. So the only reason I care about this, the only reason the university cares about this is because the university is watching its back. But that's one thing which I think sort of slightly undercuts this worry a bit. It doesn't take it away, but it undercuts it. The other thing is I think when we think that there's something wrong with misconduct or there's something wrong with lacking integrity in research, I think we don't just think it's a matter of reputation. I think it misses the sort of phenomenology here slightly that we think there is something wrong with it and it's not just about the reputation of the relevant institution or journal or, or professional body. And finally, the other kind of harms and benefits involved here are the ones involved about in researchers. This is where this point about direct judgments come back. So, and it also reflects, influences what we can do about these sorts of, these sorts of misconduct. Um, the reputational stuff, the financial considerations, and indeed career prospects are all things that are on, on the line here for the researchers as well. So not just the reputation, not just the reputation of the institution, but of the researcher. So the researcher in making the decision about whether to cut corners on this piece of research has to think about these sorts of benefits as well and has to make these trade-offs. How much does the pharmaceutical industry money matter as compared to a sort of viable career or something, those sorts of things. So these are the sorts of individual decisions that we're not always, we're not really, we're very rarely privy to in these kinds of cases, um, which I think make a difference when we're thinking about these direct judgments as opposed to the kinds of responses to the direct judgments we disagree with. <clears throat> so the second kind of case that we were, that I was looking at, um, the second part of that distinction was these principle-based problems. Um, and the rough and broadly the two sorts of problems we get here are sort of wrong intentions or motivations um, and then the character issues and, and dishonesty. And these are the sorts of worries that we might have again about misconduct and how we might criticise and how we might, uh, what might justify acting in a particular way with respect to misconduct. We might worry about wrong intentions or we might run about things like dishonesty. So these might be the features that we seek to address in order to justify particular actions dealing with misconduct. We want to tr correct wrong intentions or change the researcher's character in some sort of way. And I think these, basing our responses on these sorts of things faces a number of problems. I mean, the first, the first problem is it looks like these kinds of intentions and character issues are going to be difficult to prevent. And by, this is just a reference back to the point, the predicament of the individual researcher. The individual researcher is in the position of having to decide and weigh up how much 
you know, how much is the 10,000 pounds from, the, from AstraZeneca worth to me? Right? And when they make that decision, they're going to make that decision independently of all these other sorts of things that we're considering. And so how they do that balancing is to a certain extent entrenched and we will we'll be very difficult. I mean, one thing we can do, of course, is, is skew that enough so that, they're, so that they're always going to choose not to be dishonest. I mean, this is the sort of thing that you have a massive, a massive punishment for dishonesty, so you lose a hand if you're dishonest. And that will pretty much make sure that people won't be dishonest. Right? I mean, that's one, I mean, that's a, strikes me as a legitimate strategy. I mean, would never fly, I don't think. But um, it's important also that the re that these things are not about consequences. So we're not we're not interested here in these bad these wrong intentions because they have bad consequences because we've already dealt with that, right? That's that's the that's the worry about harms. If we're worried about harms, then we think about it in that in those sorts of terms. Um, I'm also not sure that the harm thinking about these and consequences generalises in quite the same way as these ones, these ones do. Some, some kinds of cases will have more, involve more harms than others. <coughs> um, and in these kinds of cases, in terms of the character cases and the wrong intentions case, um, we have all sorts of issues about how we justify the interference. So this is referring back to that question, the point about um, we want to make researchers into better people. We want them, researchers, to be honest, not dishonest. We want them to be collegial. We want them to be friendly. We want them to be nice. These sorts of, these sorts of, it's, what, what's unclear about this is why research is special. We don't make people be nice in other contexts. Why should we make them be nice here? So there's a worry there about how, about how these, these things get justified. Um, I should just say a little bit about a diagnosis for the sort of misconduct stuff before I say there's a little bit about the, um, the more general strategies. Um, I mean, one of the things that I think is going on here is that we get, we, we tend to be outraged by scientific misconduct in a way that, we, that sort of seems disproportionate to other sorts of misconduct. Um, I think what we do is that we forget the sort of the amount of politics that's involved in science, the amount of politics involved in the practice of science. We have this sort of idealised view about the way in which what science is. We have this idea that, that there's just the researcher slaving away in the sort of pursuit of truth. But in fact, there are all exactly the sorts of political struggles and political dilemmas that come up in every other kind of practice. Um, so I think in terms of dealing with these sorts of things, I think we're better off rather than trying to in discourage with punitive, by punitive measures and that sort of stuff, trying to undermine the sources of the politics. So things like reputation, um, funding biases, pecking orders, hierarchies, of course, in this hallowed institution, we don't know anything about those. Um, those sorts of cultural questions seem to be as much as much the, the issue here as anything else, and making difference, making a difference there, seems to be as much about, seems to be much more productive. Um, but of course, that's not necessarily saying that we should ignore those harms. Um, but I do see, as I mean, as I've as I've suggested, I think that the serious harms that are involved in these sorts of misconduct are, are harms that 
that undermine the point of the research. And so they're, particu they're, they're particularly, they're distinctive in, because they do that. Um, now, I might, uh, I was going to say something now a little bit about how all these things go for humanities and social sciences. Um, but I'll just skip over, well you can probably read that already as it is. Um, the humanities and social sciences are different and they should be treated differently. Uh, <laughs> just because I want to get onto this stuff and I, I, I well, I don't want to keep you too long. Um, <clears throat> back to these questions about the, the general, so I want to move now from these sort of more specific biomedical concentrated issues about misconduct to now think about the whole, the broad question. That is, the broad question about research integrity, ethics, how we deal with managing, governing, regulating this whole area and what justifies that whole question, which I think underpins a lot of this. I mean, I think, uh, I think where we have got to to this point, I mean, what this sort of, the case study of thinking about misconduct and conflict of interest get it, is um, that there isn't a lot of systematic justification. Right? It's all a bit, it's all bitsy. I mean, the most systematic stuff we've got here is the harm stuff. That is, the harms that undermine the point of research. Everything else seems a bit loose and we don't have an overarching account. Even the harm stuff doesn't seem to be that broadly applicable, particularly if we take in the kinds of harms involved in social science research and the kinds of harms involved in humanities research. So, we take research integrity to apply and these issues about governance and regulation to apply more broadly than with anything we've come up with so far. Um, so the remaining question is this is question of what justifies the interference by the state or society into research. And I'm thinking about, I mean, I think you, there are versions of this that apply to these institutions within society and within the state as well. But before I actually try to come up with an answer to this, I think it's important to think about why it is that there's a presupposition that we shouldn't interfere. Right? So far I've been acting as though that's all clear. That it's clear that if we, don't, if we don't have a justification for interfering and meddling in research then we oughtn't to. But what we don't have is any account of why it is that we ought not to interfere. <coughs> yes. And I take it that the basis here is um, the libertarian style of view, and this is the idea that what the state is for and what society is for, what it does, is it protects individuals from other individuals. More specifically than that, it protects individuals from restricting the liberty of other individuals. Right, so the key value here is that each individual has the liberty right, the right to determine and to construct their lives, the way their lives go, in the way they see fit. And the only justification by anybody else for doing anything interfer interfering with that person will be if the exercise of that person's act activity infringes on the liberties of others. Right? This is a sort of standard libertarian view. So liberty is the, pri the, the, the preeminent value and the only time we're allowed to interfere is when my exercise of my liberty interferes with somebody else's liberty. 
on this kind of view, the idea is a very confrontational view and the idea is the focus is on protection from interference. So what we want to do is make sure that, uh, that the researcher in this case, individuals more generally, are protected from interference by the state and from any other, any other restrictions on their liberty. And this is most often found in the context of threats to individual liberty. So when we get the defence of misconduct, the defence of, of research misconduct, or we, get the, we think about why it is we should have any sort of ethics involvement, ethics governance, why these research should be regulated, often the response is put in terms of the right to research. That scientists, that researchers have the right to do the research and they don't, and that it's an infringement of their right if we get in the way of that and if we restrict their liberty. And this is very much a libertarian sort of style of view. One of the ways in which this right to research has been cashed out is in terms of freedom of speech. So the thought is that research is another, way of, another form of expression. Just so we protect freedom of speech, we should respect that. Another alternative is in terms of privacy. We think we have a right to privacy. The way in which the, the research that I do in my own home is my... Uh, <laughs> There's a privacy right and we think that, look, I, this research is restricted, is, is protected in these sorts of ways. So that is the sort of underlying view that we need to respond to if we're going to come up with an answer for why there should be some sort of governance in place. We need to respond to this idea of the right to research. So one response to this view is a sort of resources-based account. And this is the line that so look, the public society pays for the research, so they have a say. Uh, research is accountable because we're letting you do this, Sonny. We're the one that's stumping up the cash, so you need to, so you need to, um, you need to let us have a look at what you're doing. Um, <coughs> the the worry about this is, I mean, there's a couple of worries about this view. I think, first of all, it's not always the case that society and the public actually pays for the research, or even sponsors the research. But I take it that we think that the research integrity issues apply across that as well. Um, and when they do, when society does pay, it's not clear that society pays for specific pieces of research. What they pay for, presumably, is a whole package of research, which is then, there are then bodies appointed to make decisions about which particular pieces of research. Are, so it gets, it's devolved. So there's a connection. I mean, the way in which I often have thought about this is in terms of people object to, as it were, my taxes going towards, I don't know, building a new hospital. And the sort of thought is, well, how do you know your taxes are actually going to that top? Maybe they're going to the build the road instead. So people have this idea that anything that the taxes pay for is something that they're paying for. Whereas it might be that actually it's sort of one step removed. So they're funding a program of research which has a whole process of systems involved in which piece of research should, should be paid for. Um, a lot of the context in which this has come up, I should say, is, is in the context of stem cell research in the US, thinking about the right to research. Um, and, the response, and the response is there, it looks like even where the state, in this case, even when the state is not paying for the research, if we have worries about stem cell research, it might be that we have them irrespective of this accountability point. Second sort of thing we might say in response to the libertarian view is, no, 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 you've got the state all wrong. The state actually has an obligation to protect the public and to promote the public's welfare. 
So it's important that the state sponsors research that will make people's lives better. And it's also important that they make sure that the sorts of research that goes on is not a waste of money, it's not a waste of resources, and it doesn't expose them to any particular sorts of harm. Of course, the problem is that it actually might not turn out that way. So we might think that actually the best way to avoid harm and to promote welfare is to let researchers get on with their job and to not be interfering with it. Right? So allowing, this is the idea that this is a sort of a John Stuart Mill idea, that by allowing people to do all sorts of research, we actually have a, bet, we have a society that's better off than if we are very closely restrictive of what's allowed and what's permitted. So have a heavy set of governance relations might actually curtail the benefits and avoidance of harms than we expect. So I don't think either of these particularly does the job, partly because there are exceptions, partly because they're not so generalisable, and partly because there are genuine questions about their effectiveness. Um, and so <clears throat> one sort of way in which that I've been thinking about, along, along with um, Mikey, co a colleague at Ethox, we've been working a bit on this, is thinking of research as um, constitutive of social life. And one of the ways of thinking about this is that um, that sort of partly inspired this view is the idea that, look, inquiry generally, if you think about very generally inquiry as opposed to more specifically research, inquiry seems to be really important for the democratic process. So democracy looks like one of those places where it's a, it doesn't really function unless people are free to inquire about the different parties, inquire about their society, inquire about the ways in which their society will function in order to inform the way in which they vote, in the way in which they participate in the process. So sort of generalising slightly from that, we might think, look, research as a sort of form and an institutionalised form of inquiry feeds into this question about participation feeds into this, this question about how, what the social role of research is and the ways in which the sort of democratic society gets enhanced by allowing and by encouraging these sorts of research. So the initial thought is, well, inquiry, understanding inquiry and research as a democratic requirement, a requirement constitutive of the process. I mean, I think that's, in the end, doesn't quite work because the worry is that, um, what about non-democratic societies? Presumably we still think that research is important there. Society, presumably before we had democratic societies, research was important in, research, important in the same sorts of ways as we take it to be important today. So the sort of final, well not the final, the sort of latest version of this is that research and systematically inquiry generally informs and constructs both the individual and the society. And so this is what we mean by it's part of a constitutive part of human and social life. The thought is, there's a deeper understanding about the point of human life and what counts as leading a flourishing life in a flourishing society that requires science, that requires research generally, requires this sort of inquiry. And so that this is a sort of, I take it that this is a sort of more, a, a deeper under, deeper rejection of the libertarian view that says not only science is just about keeping people apart. I mean, fundamentally, I think um, that the, the idea, what's, what's at issue here between the libertarian view and this view is whether or not society is about a sort of collaborative effort 
a collaborative enterprise or whether or not it's a sort of a primarily an individual effort and society manages the individual projects within it. A couple of very quick concluding remarks. I don't think this settles the question that we're, we're thinking about what kinds of governance, what kinds of interference are justified in the, in the name of research integrity or in the name of ethics or in the name of any of these sorts of problems. Um, so it doesn't say how we should structure this. It doesn't say what we should do, what we should allow, what, how we should organise this. Um, but what it does show is that society has a stake in the research. And I think it does so in a way that's a little less obvious, a little more substantial than just accountability for resources or for wel or the welfare kind of account. Um, I take it that, that this gives us some sort of support for research integrity understood in this broad way and it drowns a sort of general concern without requiring, requiring burdensome interferences. So we can balance between concerns about the usefulness of the research, concerns about the avoidance of harms, with the allowing researchers to carry on in a, in a relatively free, free sort of way. I'm sorry that was a bit longer than I expected. <laughs> Thank you very much.